Hey-ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 51 of our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If this is your first time here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order, and we don't want you to miss any of our tale. We're so excited to have listeners from all over the world. It's amazing for us to be sharing our podcast with all of you. And if you are enjoying it, support us. Buy some Tudor Time Machine swag. Go to the Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and buy, buy, buy. You can get a Do You Tudor tea or a Tudor Time Machine sweatshirt, and you can support the podcast at the same time. We'd be so grateful. In our last episode, Constance had a visit in prison. In this episode, we're going to see where Constance lands after her release. And after the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 51, Outside the Poultry Compter, in which the history of the relic is told, and Constance is given a fateful assignment. Constance briefly thought she was to run along behind with Wynne, as her aunt never pampered her, but lo and behold there were two litters and four sturdy men in livery. "'You are a true stoner,' her aunt awarded with a kiss on the cheek as one of the men helped Constance into place. Although you look peaky, prison should gird up the soul. Proud suffering shall make you plump. How ridiculous, Constance thought. There was nothing about that disgusting rat's nest that would plump anyone. What story did her aunt tell herself? That prison was noble? Did her aunt imagine that she, Constance, thought of her soul in that repulsive place? Never. She thought of Rutland. Rutland. Constance left that bit of hell when she thought of him. Her aunt was inhuman, wanting her to marry a legacy to her mother and ennoble the pisspot of the jail with her thoughts. No, she should not think so of her aunt. Her aunt, who had done her so many kindnesses. She presumed she was being carried to the Paget house, but found herself disembarking at the Howards. Mary Howard's father, Sir William, welcomed Constance, saying a fervent prayer at her safe release from prison, spouting the same refrain as her aunt about the wonder and virtue of being dragged off to a cell to sit in dung. He and her aunt gushed over Constance as she sat eating a late dinner. The stoners, how they endure, her aunt said. One day, Constance, your children shall tell of you as your mother, my sweet Bess, told of your great kinswoman, Isabel Stoner, and the relics of our chapel. Do you not remember the tale? It was as if Constance had been struck. How could she have forgotten? Rutland filled every moment of thought. Of course, Sir Francis Darrell, his arrival at the Arundel Inn. Even now, Philomena might have Wyatt's pomander and was waiting for her to come with the key. Oh, how could she get away? Her aunt went on. I loved how your dear mother embroidered the story for you. Bess had such a talent. It lodged in you. It held you and called you to us. It made you the brave girl you are. But you are past such half-truths fit only for a child. What do you mean, my lady aunt? Dear Bess wanted you to have hope, but it was such a bleak time. I shall tell you. Lady Isabel did run with the sacred things. But she was trapped in the barn and sent her bundle out with the page. 
He ran to the river, but poor fellow, he did not make it out alive. Henry's men were wild dogs, demons, driven by the fear under that bulging king. That poor boy lost his hands, and then they set him on fire, and he threw himself into the river. He is in heaven now, dearest Constance, and those men are in hell. They melted everything down that very night. Even the ring of the martyr, Sir Thomas More? Constance held her breath as she asked the question. Indeed, that was one of the first things to be melted down. King Henry had the ruby from it, set into a clock. Constance gulped her wine. Such destruction, desolation, and no relic. A tale told to a little girl. An empty quest. Sir William added, The devil has those looters on hot racks, and he turns the screw, breaking their bodies while his minions pound nails into their feet. The Lord is merciful, Aunt Stoner said, wrapping her arms around herself in an embrace. They hung the monks and pulled their guts out. The filth tore out their hearts while they still beat. That is what they did, and they are damned for it. Constance, are we not strong to hold on to our fury for thirty years? Should we not hold it one hundred, two hundred? When should the fury of our wrongs be spent? An agony filled Constance. The relic, the search was her only anchor, but it was a lie. The hope it gave her was a hope in nothing. How could it be so? She wished she were a little girl so she could cry and run away from these tormentors. She drank her wine, knowing the misery was written on her face. Yet she did not care. She was too tired to hide. Dearest, Aunt Stoner said, I see your visage, the visage of one wrong. Your blood is full of our righteous wrath, and we shall pass it to our children and they to theirs. We are Stoners. Wine radishes bread, Sir William sang as he watched Constance eat. I sewed the tooth of St. Luke the Evangelist into a cow's stomach and carried the dead beast on my back to a hiding place. When England is Catholic again, all the treasures we have secreted away shall be dug up and honoured to the glory of God. Oh, sir, you are the great bear of faith, cried Aunt Stoner. Constance chewed at the radish. How could she not have known? How could she have thought she could find the relic of the martyr more? How could she have recounted such a hollow tale to Philomena? Sir Thomas Wyatt was no Catholic hero who saved the ring of his friend. He was only a lovesick scribbler. Oh, stoners, stoners, who will you not dare to vex? Sir William boomed. I once had myself lowered through the window of the bell tower. How I had to squeeze my great shoulders through. Lord Cecil is a fool, Mistress Constance, arresting you for the mass when you did so much more. The heretics do not know your mouth is stopped with the cork of stoner bravery. Come, preparations are afoot. Constance was shoved along between Sir William and her aunt. Her grinding teeth sounded like millstones in her ears. She had fooled no one. She could confess that the Cecils knew of her visits to the tower, that her freedom came at the cost of her being a spy. Or she could try to play both ends against the middle, bouncing between Lady Mildred and her aunt, pile lie upon lie until it all crashed in on her. 
Through a tight passageway, Sir William led Constance and her aunt to a panelled wall. His fingers found an edge, and he slid a board to the side, revealing a secret cupboard. Step in, ladies, and see the authority of your host. Oh, Sir William, you indulge us so, said Aunt Stoner. Fie, thought Constance. Flatter him and his windbag will pop. Sir William shut the panel and the darkness enclosed on them. There, Aunt Stoner indicated a small wooden lattice. Constance peered through into the torch-lit room with vaulted ceilings carved with roses and painted. Below stood a table larger than a king's bed. There were no doors to this room, but panels opened on all sides as men pushed through. This was a room for confidences. There was Charles Paget himself, the deceiver. Constance identified the others, Catholics all. The Duke of Norfolk, Sir John Sheffield, Sir Thomas Southwell, Baron Lumley, the noble Henry Fitzalan, the Viscount Montague, others whom had always been at the Mass. As he took his place at the table, Sir William's gargantuan head obliterated Constance's view. Signor David Rizzo is dead. God willing, the royal Scots will be reunited, Sir William proclaimed. I'm willing to pledge arms when they march to England, a voice growled. Queen Mary is too lenient with the Protestants. Was that Charles speaking? Darnley will sway her. Have you not witnessed his Catholic loyalty? Another man assured. Mary will see reason, and this will send her to the arms of her husband. The men's voice came so fast, rippling with plans and anger. Indeed. She will grant Darnley his place as King of Scotland. Spain will support the faithful. The two will claim the English throne as Catholics. You lords speak bollocks. Darnley has botched the job. How can we trust him to rule? It was a poor plot to kill Rizzo. The Italian served the spy, did I not always say so? It was Lord Cecil and the bastard Elizabeth who paid Rizzo to come between the Scottish royals. Elizabeth and Cecil knew of the plot long ago and let it go. More voices joined. Men spoke over each other and Constance strained again to see who was talking but could not. To what end? Rizzo was their man. Arses. We have run this road one hundred times. Rizzo played everyone, wedged himself between the king and queen, took Mary's favours. He was her lover. She would never lie with a hunchback swindler. Tis true, his thieving. He emptied the coffers. He cared only for his own pockets. Darnley is a cuckold. It was the Scottish lords who killed Rizzo, not Darnley. Fool, he bid them do it. Darnley's knife was in Signor David, even if he was not he who dealt the blow. The blood splashed the Queen's dress, the babe endangered. It was a failure, a catastrophe. Why not be rid of Darnley altogether? Bile ruins his humour. No, he must live, though he be a hotspur. This is the Countess of Lennox doing. She desires chaos. The Countess hates Mary for cheating her son. She seeks vengeance. You wrong her. Twould have been well but that ravenous she-wolf mother. It was the uncle, George Douglas, who bent Darnley to be hot. No, Douglas would have done it quietly. It was the Earl of Lennox. He has been by his son's side through it all. Fool, he has gone from the Scottish court. He and his son have quarrelled. Lennox is gnawed by his wife. She sent instructions, prodded Darnley. Oh, such folly. She has no communication from the tower. Indeed, she smuggled letters out with a girl who brought her holy bread. Constance's mind doubled and redoubled. 
the Countess of Lennox's letters to her aunt, no trifles between friends to save a prisoner from despair, no cajoling lines of glory and endurance. The Countess of Lennox sent out plans, and her aunt forwarded them to Darnley from the safety of Stoner House. And that man, the foreign man, Rizzo, was butchered. What fear he must have had! What despair! Mildred Cecil's accusations struck. Blood was on Constance's hands. How she had been used! Such a pawn! And a fool! A murderer! This trustworthy soul who bought the host, can we send her in with the devil-bite instead? Constance craned her neck to see who offered her up in this way, but her aunt shot her a shushing glance. Be rid? Indeed be rid. Then Darnley's fine sense would return. With the Countess of Lennox whispering in his ear, the royal couple will never be content or strong enough to give us aid. That is so. You have a shrewd sense of human nature. Many die in the tower. Her death would be laid at the feet of Elizabeth. That will serve us. Indeed it will. Lady Lennox has the support of the King of Spain. King Philip will blame Elizabeth and come to our aid. Do we decide? Constance's ears ached. This verdict condemned the Countess of Lennox and herself. Mercy, it could not be. We do not. Rizzo's bloody murder was a blink ago. We bide our time. So say yea. I say we strike. Lord William is just. We would not pave a path of friend's blood for the king to enter England on. I would do such a thing for a Catholic king. Muffling a yowl, Constance struck up, smashing her head against the low ceiling. Her aunt hushed, scolded, and pulled her out of the cabinet. What has possessed you, girl? I must to the water closet. Constance drew the door and dropped onto the close stool, cradling her head in her hands. These men, their faces so noble, and their belief, their adherence to their faith so admirable. How did their actions answer them? The Countess of Lennox. She was a loyal Catholic. How could they condemn her? And she herself, she herself, to carry the devil's bite to end a life? Carry the vehicle of a woman's death? It broke the Ten Commandments. She, the puppet of Lucifer, Mammon, Leviathan, and who else? Mephistopheles and other demons. Belzebub and Satan. If poison came into her hands, she herself would eat it. God would forgive her self-destruction, since she did it to save another. She would not burn in hell. God was merciful, she hoped. Constance, Aunt Stoner barged in, you while away the time as you always did. And look at you, strange mouse. You have not used the close stool. I do not want to bring harm to the Countess of Lennox, Constance blurted out. Dear girl, here in the privy? Lady Aunt, I cannot. I am weak. I am so very weak. You cannot ask this of me. Oh, pish. The Tudor bastard herself would not call you weak. Come, Sir William has given you the finest room in the house, an honour, and you need to restore yourself before meeting Charles. You must learn to love your duty, my girl. The Countess of Lennox urges her son against Queen Mary of Scots, but the King and Queen of Scotland must be united to pose a threat to the bastard Elizabeth. The Countess tries to serve her own will, and not that of all English Catholics. Constance, dear, through duty you shall find even greater strength. We must do as we are bidden. Wiser heads than ours decide our course. Unspoken objections lodged in Constance's throat. She let herself be led along.
The door to the luxurious room was ajar. A strange sound issued from within. A wheezing. Dearest, have you a dog? asked Aunt Stoner wryly. Lady Aunt, you know I do not. It must be Wynne. Her aunt clucked disapproval and kissed Constance on the forehead. Do not tarry. I shall tell Charles to await you. Constance entered to witness her red-faced servant. It was quite extraordinary. Only one other time had Constance seen a face so distorted. Bridget Skipworth had eaten strawberries, and it was as if the spirit of the strawberry possessed her. The girl's face had become a wild red, and her cheeks had swollen over her eyes. She had stayed like a swollen berry for hours. It was awful. When do you need a physician? Oh, Mistress Constance! Then some garbled words came out, followed by a giant phlegm bubble. Wynne sat on the bed's remarkably beautiful coverlet bumped with embroidery, soft, with inset velvet leaves, the pillow with long, twisting silk tassels. Constance stroked one, impressed by the well-hung tapestries and the light of the room. Twenty candles must be burning. What a shame. Neither she nor Wynne were in a humour to luxuriate. She handed Wynne a handkerchief. Wynne, Wynne, I beg you hush. I shall weep too in sympathy, for I know not what. You will not weep in sympathy, mistress. Constance was surprised to hear Wynne lash out. Why do you say so? It will be back to Stoner with me, and I, I will never see him more. He and I were thrown together again and again at the inn. I was sent to the kitchen, witness to his clever management. Fate threw us together, and now we shall be torn asunder. In all the years Constance had known her, Wynne had never uttered so many words, and the flowery tone. Had Wynne been sneaking off to the playhouse? Wynne, whom do you speak of? Oh, mistress, do not bait me. I have not been sly. No, you have not, but it has been such a strange time that I have not paid any mind. The love that burns betwixt us, between Master Falk and I. He has begged me to marry him, but out of loyalty to my position I have put him off. I shall follow you back to Stoner, and I will lose my love. He is such a fine man. He shall find another bright-eyed beauty. <laughs> God sod it. Constance never had thought once about what Wynne did in the kitchen at the Arundel Inn. The girl had been falling in love with Falk. Wynne, dry your eyes. You shall marry him. You shall have your man. And he shall not love another. Wynne sighed. Truly, Mistress Constance. Truly. Well, I know how you depend and cannot do without me. I tried to be strong in the prison. Wynne, do not fear for me. The relief on Wynne's face, the joy. Wynne was so ill-suited to her post, but as a wife and mother, she might be very happy. I shall give you something to sell, and you may keep the coins. Oh, Mistress Constance, you shall be in my prayers every night. A knock on the door. Her aunt's voice. Constance, child. Charles Paget awaits you. I am coming, madam, Constance replied. Oh, mistress, allow me to prepare you. Wynne rose happily. Very well, Wynne, Constance said, allowing Wynne to fluff her hair, arrange her ruff, and smooth her skirt. You look lovely, mistress, Wynne smiled. As if groping her way through a thick mist, 
Constance set out to find the man she did not want. Which words had come from Charles's mouth at the gathering? Had he offered her up as the hand of death? Her sickened stomach returned. A taste of bile came to her mouth. Charles was not at the foot of the stairs, as she thought he would be. No one was there in truth, but the front door was open. She should close it. The cold was spreading through Sir William Howard's house. Constance walked out the door. Where is Constance headed? We'll have to wait for the next reading to find out. Well, she has to get away. Well, she can't stay at Sir William's to be used as an unwilling assassin. Constance thought she was doing something noble to help a cause, but now she's in too deep and is now. Her aunt, Sir William, the other conspirators, they all believe the end justifies the means. But Constance can't accept that. No, she has her own kind of morality that's yeah. not just within the rules she's taught. She's crushed to find out that the relic was a fairy tale that really gave her hope. And now she's just confronting all these harsh realities about what she believed. And because of the situation in Scotland, everything is in confusion. Constance is clear she can't be an assassin, whatever Lady Lennox has done. And Constance already fears she has death on her hands because she unknowingly passed these letters from Lady Lennox to Darnley. Letters that in this crazy situation where nobody really knows what happened or what's going on, she worries might have been part of the plot to kill David Rizzo. Rizzo has really taken a place in history and some historians use the name Rico but we're going to stick with Rizzo but we do acknowledge that there are other ways to say and to spell his name which is so common in this period and I think that's a very good reminder for all the Shakespeare authorship doubters because I have heard people say that Shakespeare couldn't be Shakespeare because Shakespeare was spelt in so many different ways in so many different places, which is evidence that whoever Shakespeare pretended to be, he was illiterate or not a real person. But that is just not true. There was no standardized spelling at this time. People spelt their names in many different ways. But I wish we still did that. <laughs> I wish we still did that, I too. hate standardized spelling. It's t so terrible. But it does make things less confusing, let's be honest. Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's our little rant for today. In this chapter, there's lots of different theories that are voiced by Sir William and his fellow plotters. Because the motivation for killing Rizzo is still complicated 400 years later, it must have been just a massive, insane, out-of-control rumor mill. It seems like such a pointless murder. Rizzo was not a Protestant lord. He didn't wield power. Why him? It was a violent death, and it destabilized the country, and it actually started Mary's fall. She never recovered from it. The sort of bloody nature of it, it's natural that Constance assumes the worst, that she's had a part in it. Because people are just being caught up in things yeah. beyond their control. I think about how it is now, despite all of our means of communication. It takes time to piece together the truth of an event. And imagine what it must have been like in 1565, when news came in bits and pieces over days and weeks, even months. So much time for scuttlebutt to fly. <laughs> <laughs> scuttlebutt, that's a funny word. It took a lot of time for news to travel. Edinburgh, where the murder of Rizzo took place, is about 500 miles as the crow flies from London. And let's say a horse is going extremely directly. They can gallop a mile in maybe 10 minutes. So doing our math. Well, full disclosure, we've done this math ahead of time because neither of us have calculator type brains that could work out any of this math right away. No. <laughs> Even writing post, 
changing courses, and galloping all the way with good roads, good weather, it would have taken at least three days for tidings from Scotland to reach Elizabeth's court. And you said good roads and good weather, neither of which I think were present in the border between Scotland. (laughs) and England at this point. By the time news arrived, it was old and very possibly wrong. Rizzo's murder occurred on the night of March 9th, 1566. No doubt someone was dispatched to England with a report, but it would have been a very incomplete picture of events. On March 15th, Mary wrote a long letter to Elizabeth, and in it she said, Some of our subjects, and counseled by their proceedings, have declared manifestly what men they are, slain our most special servant in our own presence, and thereafter held our own proper person captive treasonably. Some of our subjects and counsel. Mary was being very cagey at this point. She was not naming names, especially not Darnley's. And Darnley was the one who held her back when they killed Rizzo. There was no question in Mary's mind at this point when she was writing that letter that Darnley was involved. It wasn't like he was a secret plotter. He was in the room where it happened to quote Hamilton. And besides the obvious horror of her own husband having plotted against her, maybe Mary was embarrassed to admit Darnley's treachery. Elizabeth was so against the marriage from the start. Well, because of Darnley's claim to the English throne, not because he had a lousy personality. (laughs) But nevertheless, there is Elizabeth with her loyal advisors and relatively stable country and no usurping husband. Marrying Darnley was such a disaster for Mary. I recently read this quote about Mary and Elizabeth attributed to Nicholas Throckmorton in a letter that he wrote to Robert Dudley. Methinks it were to be wished of all wise men and Her Majesty's good subjects that one of these two queens of the Isle of Britain were transformed into the shape of a man (laughs) to make so happy a marriage as there might be a unity of the whole Isle. I love that idea. Mary and Elizabeth marry. They're perfectly (laughs) suited to each other. And I think he actually also talked about how they were both tall and good looking (laughs) and athletic. They'd make the perfect couple. And Darnley was so terrible for Mary, but there was another bad-tempered man who did all he could to tank her rule. Her half-brother, the Protestant Earl of Moray, James Stuart, illegitimate son of James V, Mary's father. Well, yes, (laughs) him too. But I was actually thinking of the Presbyterian preacher and theologian John Knox, founder of the Scottish Kirk. This is embarrassing, but it wasn't until a few weeks ago that someone, in fact, I think it was you, told me that Kirk is the Scottish word for church. I stupidly thought during all these years of reading the history of the Tudors that the Kirk was some type of Scottish government council. I don't know. And it was somehow combined in my mind with kilt. I thought the Kirk was a type of Scottish national dress. Anyway, silly me, because, of course, Kirk means the Scottish church. Simple. And John Knox is credited with being its founder. Knox is notorious for not being a fan of female rulers. In 1558, he wrote the polemical work, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Was there a second blast? It's funny you ask. (laughs) The first blast was so successful in terms of how many it sold and how many people read it that Knox planned a second and even a third blast. (laughs) He must have gotten distracted blasting other monstrous things. Well, he had a very long list. I think he was quite a grouch. 
but against women rulers, he wrote, For who can deny, but it repugneth to nature, that the blind shall be appointed to lead and conduct such as do see, that the weak, the sick, and impotent persons shall nourish and keep the whole and strong, and finally that the foolish, mad, and Pharisee shall govern the discreet, and give counsel to such as be sober of mind, and such be all women, compared unto men in bearing of authority. For their sight in civil regiment is but blindness, their strength weakness, their counsel foolishness, and judgment Pharisee, if it be rightly considered. Do, 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 do. I mean, it says, who can deny that? And I feel I can deny that. <laughs> well, history also can deny yes. that, Mr. Knox. Yes. And in fact, there's a very wonderful book by the dearly departed Terry Pratchett. If you have read it out there, call the monstrous regiment about this group of women that serve together. It's a, it's a very amazing book. He was writing in 1558, mainly against Mary of Guise, who by many people's account was a good ruler. Yeah, but he hated her because she was Catholic. He was also, of course, against another Mary, Mary Tudor, who died in November 1558. But Knox was no fan of Elizabeth's when she took the throne in 1558 because he thought she was too tolerant of Catholics. And Knox absolutely detested Mary Stuart and did the best he could to undermine her authority. He established the Scottish Kirk in 1560 and then blam. Catholic Mary came back from Catholic France in 1561, having spent most of her life under the influence of her Catholic Guise relatives. Well, I think what a lot of the Protestant lords and what Knox was probably hoping was that Mary, because she was married to the king of France, I think they were hoping that she would stay in France and that Mary's half-brother, Moray, would be regent and would have the power in Scotland. I think they were really not expecting her to come back. And actually, Mary's half-brother, Moray, tried to lead a failed rebellion against her with the support of Knox. Moray assumed Elizabeth would help him, but she was, as usual, noncommittal. She sent some money. She said, well, good luck, but she didn't really support him, and then she didn't really send any more money. Moray fled to England after his failed coup attempt that Mary actually won. Elizabeth acted as if she had no idea what he had been up to in Scotland. My goodness, what brings you here, sir? come to visit. (laughs) So it seemed like Mary, back in Scotland, having just triumphed over her half-brother, was in a winning position, having cemented her power. With Moray gone, Knox and the Protestant nobles worried that Mary would take advantage of the moment and promote the Catholic religion in Scotland. In this way, her triumph over her brother weirdly put her in a worse position than she was before. Because with Moray in Scotland, Knox and the Protestant Lord saw Moray as a kind of checks and balances. It's kind of an an odd situation because Mary has just won against this failed coup attempt, but it actually puts her in a worse position. And there were rumors that Mary proposed to join a Catholic League with Spain and France, and that Mary was being heavily supported by the Pope. Those rumors helped fuel the fire of the Protestant nobles' hatred of David Rizzo. (laughs) He seems strangely (laughs) insignificant, but they decided to focus on him. He was a Catholic and he was an Italian and they considered him perhaps worst of all Mm low-born. 
And people accused him of being a spy of the Pope, which he may have been, but that was nothing unusual. Looking back historically, it seems weird to focus on Rizzo because he was only Mary's secretary. But as we can see in other historical situations, sometimes a person who seems quite small in the big picture is the focus and can destabilize everything. Sometimes those people are the scapegoats, as he was, and the nobles really used him to stir up Darnley. Which was very easy to do because Darnley was already dissatisfied. He wanted the crown matrimonial, not just to be a king consort. And Mary steadfastly refused to give him the crown matrimonial. Only Scotland had this law. I may be wrong about that, but I think it was only in Scotland. Because there's different laws in every country. And if England had had a crown matrimonial, that would have meant that King Philip of Spain would have succeeded Mary Tudor. This crown matrimonial was specific to Scotland at this point. It's really important to understand the difference. So in 16th century Scotland, if Darnley had been given the crown matrimonial, he would have been co-ruler as if he were born to it. And in the event of her death, the throne would pass to him first, not to their first child. Or even perhaps in England, sometimes it would pass to your brother or sister, you right. know, not to the person you were married to. And the crown matrimony would also mean that Darnley could remarry and the children of the new marriage would be in line to the throne. Mary didn't trust Darnley. I think this idea that somehow if something happened to her, Darnley could remarry anyone and that he could start his own line of kings. His own dynasty. dynasty. Yeah, like once she saw his personality, I think she would have been terrified of that. And I don't blame her. And the fact that Darnley's parents, the Countess of Lennox, who we have in our story, and her husband, the Earl of Lennox, were pushing so hard for Mary to make Darnley co-ruler, I think probably that made her even more nervous because they knew that if Darnley had the crown matrimonial and something happened to Mary, Darnley could begin this line of kings that would come from them. That was a very powerful thing. Because Mary would not give him the crown matrimonial, the plotters offered Darnley the crown matrimonial. You could argue that they, in fact, did not have that power, but that is what they did. And I guess they decided that Darnley was a more suitable leader for them than Mary. Which is kooky crazy because Darnley was also a Catholic, and that was one of their big problems with Mary, besides being pretty much an alcoholic and very unstable. Maybe they thought Darnley was more pliable than Mary, had less sense of what to do. I think you're right. I think they thought Darnley would be more easily manipulated. They also convinced Darnley that Rizzo was Mary's lover, which implied that Mary's child that she was carrying was Rizzo's. As historian Antonia Frazier puts it, the character of Darnley was like a tinderbox on which it was all too easy for the disaffected nobles to strike a flame using Rizzo as a flint. You know, you'd think that Darnley would not want to endanger the legitimacy of his child. But again, Mary had not elevated him to the crown matrimonial. He had nothing to gain in terms of power from a legitimate child. The child would get the crown of Scotland over him. The plotters offered him more power than he would get from having a legitimate child. Let's go down this road. If he did have a legitimate child and he knocked off Mary Queen of Scots, he would be regent. And we have seen many people seize a lot of power through being regent. And he would be a man. If he had played the long game, which he did not, 
he might have ended up being king. I think what they suspected was that if that happened, that Moray would come back and be regent. I think they thought Darnley was not going to be able to handle that kind of power. Darnley, as far as in the normal structure of things, was only king as long as Mary lived. And the plotters held out the crown matrimonial. Then Darnley would be king even in the event that Mary and the baby died. And the bond for the plot was signed by Moray. Mary's half-brother, as well as many other powerful nobles. Even though Darnley's a Catholic, religion is not the thing. It's no, a it, thing. it's a thing. And Moray obviously signed from England. And why were they all signing this pact, too? They all insisted that Darnley sign it, so if everything went sideways, they could hold him responsible to Mary. But to me, it just seems a little crazy that you're sort of like, I'm going to have a coup and I'm going to sign the coup plot. But I guess they wanted everything to be worked out right. about what people were going to get if this coup happened, as if somehow expecting that if the coup happened, then everybody would be like, but in my coup document, <laughs> you said you would only want this, and now you want something else. This is not going to hold up in court. I mean, the whole the whole way this all happened seems so kooky to me. I think there was two things going on with, <laughs> with the coup document, as we've now called it, because I think the idea was that Rizzo was part of what was going to have to happen to get rid of Mary as if Rizzo had some kind of power. I really don't understand it because getting rid of Rizzo was not the end game of the coup document. The coup document wanted to get rid of Mary or to force Mary to give him the crown matrimonial. And I guess they mixed it up in their minds somehow that Rizzo was the reason why she wasn't giving him the crown matrimonial. As if Rizzo would have that kind of power over her. And she was so crazy about Darnley. If he had just played his cards differently for a year. No, I think he just didn't have that kind of self-restraint. And he was an alcoholic and made a lot of trouble, so. And Darnley, with his very good (laughs) long game mind. (laughs) Long game mind said he wanted to kill. Rizzo violently and publicly. He jumped at the chance to rebel when he had it. The truth is that Mary herself really underestimated the potential of a plot against her because there were lots of rumors at her court of something afoot and she sort of dismissed them because she felt like she had just won against her half-brother who was trying to take her power and she kind of overestimated the strength of her position. Clearly Elizabeth had also heard the rumors of trouble because Randolph, one of the plotters, wrote from Scotland to Robert Dudley a few weeks before Rizzo's murder, I know for certain that this queen repenteth of her marriage. She hateth Darnley and all his kin. I know there are practices in hand contrived between father and son to come to the crown against her will. So father and son are going to get together and take yeah, the crown so she, from her. He's basically saying that it, it's Darnley and his father. Yeah. And I know that if that take effect, which is intended, David with the consent of the king, shall have his throat cut within these 10 days. That is pretty clear. Isn't it amazing that he would write that to Dudley? Dudley. But I mean, he would have known that Elizabeth would see it. If Mary didn't believe these rumors, there wasn't much Elizabeth and Robert Dudley and Cecil could have done. That's supposing that they actually wanted to prevent trouble in Scotland and that might be giving them too much credit because chaos in Scotland I would imagine was only beneficial for them and I'm sure they all knew that Darnley was being supported by his family the Earl and the Countess of Lennox to rebel against his wife and of course Elizabeth had the Countess of Lennox being held in the tower at this point 
So she couldn't possibly support Darnley. Elizabeth? Oh, no, no, no. And no, she, she had more to fear from Darnley and the Countess of Lennox and the Earl of Lennox than I think she felt she did from Mary. Plots are crazy and they catch people up and nothing ever goes as planned. And the one in Scotland absolutely did not. Because they killed Rizzo and then the plot fell apart. Yes. And now Constance feels blood on her own hands. Next time we'll discover where she's running for shelter. So tune in for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.